Why don't you join me over in John chapter 3, Gospel of John. Going to do just a one-week study, not connected to any teaching series. Uh, this should be a familiar story, a familiar account to all of us. It's um, the exchange between, or part of the exchange, I'm not going to read the whole the whole exchange between Jesus and Nicodemus. I'll read from John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. All right, I wanted to just briefly share kind of a behind the scenes peek at why I arrived at this passage and what I want to emphasize from it this morning. Um, I don't normally do this kind of stuff, but it was a blessing to me personally. I felt like it might be a blessing to you. So you know that normally I do um, longer teaching series. Um, you know, Matthew, we were, gosh, we were forever in the Gospel of Matthew, and um, many other teaching series we've done as well. I, I basically do expositional studies, which is where I take a book, start chapter one, verse one, work our way passage by passage through the book. And while there is a definite challenge to expositional uh, teaching and the preparation of expositional studies, because you have to teach what the text actually says. You can't monkey around with it. You can't make up your own um, subject matter from it. You have to, you have to um, faithfully present what the passage is actually presenting. Nevertheless, there's kind of a security blanket for a, for a teacher, a Bible teacher, in doing long expositional se uh, series. And the, the security blanket is this. I don't have to Sunday after Sunday when I'm in a teaching series like Matthew or re we've recently been through uh, the early chapters of Acts together. I don't have to uh, decide week by week, what am I going to teach this week? The text is there. I just have to be faithful to look at it and to study it, to understand it, and then to uh, accurately present it to you. Uh, the, the greater challenge in terms of figuring out what to teach is when I do topical studies. And uh, so the way the calendar worked out this year, I knew that uh, next Sunday was our was our Christmas service and the week after we're gonna stay focused on Christmas because it'll be Christmas Eve. And then I've already got lined up the, the last Sunday of the month, uh, the 31st, I'm going to do a, a New Year's focus study. And then I had hinted around that in January, I'm starting a, a new teaching series that's on my heart to do, and I, I am going to be doing that. Uh, but that left me today with, I need to come up with a, a single topical study. Now for me, the challenge is not, when I'm doing a single topical study, uh, I can't think of anything to teach about. Uh, for me, it's an issue of, I have so many things that I would like to teach about that I just don't have time or opportunity in the calendar of a Sunday service to do, especially if I'm involved in an ongoing teaching series. So this, this last week, as I was thinking about what I would teach today, I had at least, bare minimum, 10, 12 ideas that were percolating in my mind, but none of them scratched me exactly where I was itching. So uh, came uh, Tuesday, and usually by Tuesday, I'd like to at least get started on my Sunday prep. Came Tuesday, I got nothing 
definitive, nothing, nothing clear. So I began to pray in earnest, Lord, I, you know, I mean, the Lord knows, Lord, you know, I'm, I'm going to be standing up in front of this or in the back of this pulpit in front of your people. And I need to have something to present to them that's going to be a benefit and a blessing to their life. Uh, Wednesday, I'm still praying, nothing yet. Thursday, nothing yet. Friday, nothing yet. And, um, you know, by Friday, for sure, I want to be well engaged in my prep for Sunday. And uh, so I got nothing, no preparation, any of those days. And um, I went to sleep Friday night praying again as I was going to sleep. Lord, you know, tomorrow's Saturday, and that's the day before Sunday, in case, you know, you know, you know how the Lord is. He's bigger than calendar, so maybe it dropped off of his uh, field of attention. Um, so Lord, you know, tomorrow's Saturday, I've got a, a full day. I can certainly prepare a message in one day if I know what I'm going to be preparing, but um, I would like to know what I'm gonna be preparing. So I woke up Saturday morning, and needing still a clear direction, I believe the Lord gave me a clear direction and this is the way it happened. Um, you know, the winds have been blowing where I live. Has, have the winds been blowing in your, in your neighborhood as well? And I don't like the winds in terms of just uh, allergy effect on my body and I get some asthma when I get winds and I don't like that whole experience. So um, I woke up, it blew all night Friday night at my house and then I woke, up, um, I woke up Saturday morning early to get ready to go to men's prayer and um, I could hear outside the door. I normally sleep, sleep with my sliding door open for fresh air, but because of the winds, I had it shut. But I could hear the wind like rattling stuff outside. And I said, I said as I woke up to myself, just talking to myself, um, why doesn't it blow somewhere else today? You know, there's lots of places in the world, right? Why can't the wind just be blowing somewhere else today, affecting someone else's lungs and sinuses? And um, as soon as I said that to myself, uh, this line went off in my head. Uh, the wind blows where it wishes. This is from uh, John 3, verse 8. When Jesus had in verse seven just said to Nicodemus, do not marvel that I said you must be born again. And then he offers this as an explanation of what he's just said, which is you must be born again. And then he adds this as an explanation, which at this moment didn't explain anything to Nicodemus. He was left as perplexed we, at the end of this statement in verse eight as he was before Jesus said it. We know that because look at his reaction in verse nine, Nicodemus. And this is a Bible scholar, by the way, just to be clear. This is why Jesus ends in verse 10 where he ends, which is you're, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these basic spiritual concepts. In verse nine, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? He just, he's perplexed. He doesn't understand the point that Jesus is making. And he's probably wondering, why are you starting to talk about the wind? We're talking about something completely different. But it is explanatory and it's a perfect explanation if we understand what Jesus is after when he says what he says. The wind blows where it wishes. So I was sitting there on the side of my bed just getting up early Saturday morning and wishing the wind was blowing somewhere else and this, this passage was immediately in my mind. The wind blows where it wishes. What's the point in this passage? Why did Jesus start talking about weather all of a sudden, meteorology? Why did he, why did he suddenly make that reference and how in the world does that explain uh, for our sake, if not for Nicodemus, uh, the point that he's making? Well, in this circumstance, what he's talking about is the amazing miraculous experience of what we know to be salvation. He's talking about the new birth experience where a human being who's lived their life in this world under the dominating influence of sin suddenly unexpectedly has an encounter with the Lord himself in a way that forever changes and transforms their life at the core of who they are, a new birth. And then the question that arises out of that is how, how does this happen? 
And the explanation Jesus gives is about the wind. And we understand, no one here should be mystified by that, that Jesus is making a, using a, a word picture, he's making a reference to the, the power, the presence, and the activity, and the spirit, the deep spiritual influence of the Holy Spirit. The transforming power of the Spirit of God working upon the human soul to bring about a new beginning point. And we saw from our Acts study, of course, just as a, a connected reference, in Acts chapter 2, when the, when the Holy Spirit was poured out by the Lord, the ascended and enthroned Lord in heaven. The Holy Spirit was poured out upon his, his first 120 disciples, the, the seed of what became the Christian church in history. Um, and as the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the disciples there in the upper room as they were waiting upon the Lord and praying, what was their experience? How did, how did it come? How, how did the presence of the Holy Spirit come into that room and into their, into their lives in such a transforming way? We know that they heard, the first thing they heard, it was a phenomenal experience. The first thing they heard was the sound of a rushing, mighty wind from heaven that entered the room. And that is a, an, a signification of the power the presence and the influence of the Holy Spirit. And it did transform their 120 lives. They were never the same after that moment. And so it is the point Jesus is making as he ends in verse uh, eight. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. But we could say it this way, exclusively only those who are born of the Spirit. But everyone who is born of the Spirit has this encounter with the Holy Spirit. But why this emphasis, and it's the one emphasis from this passage that is one of the most important aspects of the Spirit's presence, the Spirit's work, but it's, it's not focused on as much. It's the, probably the most neglected point from this exchange. Uh, looking back up at the beginning of verse eight now, this two-word or three-word phrase, the wind blows where it wishes. What does that mean? Why does he even say that part? Why didn't he just say, okay, this is what it's like to be born again. The wind blows and then you're changed by the blowing of the wind. The, the idea of the wind here is that he, he explains, you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. Meaning the wind is invisible. You literally cannot see the wind. You can see stuff blowing in the wind and you can see stuff being blown by the wind. Um, have you ever seen, maybe you've even been in one of these, I don't know, but have you ever seen a video of like a, a dust storm in the Middle East when the wind blows so greatly and there's, there's loose sand that's, that's carried up into the wind and it's just like a wall of sand uh, blowing in the wind coming toward you. So you can recognize the wind, but it's, it's really simply, you see the sand, you don't see the wind. So his point is the wind is invisible, just like the Holy Spirit is. The wind's activity is mysterious, but this emphasis, the wind blows where it wishes. What's the takeaway? What's the point of that three word phrase, where it wishes? The point is the wind chooses when it's going to blow and the wind chooses where it's going to blow. And what about the person that's experiencing the wind? Can they control it? And this is why I believe not just the Lord helping me out by giving me a topic to teach on this morning, uh, Saturday morning when I woke up kind of bothered by the wind blowing in my neighborhood, but it was just a good healthy reminder for my heart and I hope it will be for your heart as well this morning. What's the takeaway when the wind is blowing? The takeaway is you can't control it. It's kind of, I'll tie it to what Frances was just sharing from her own personal story. Has she been able to control the set of experiences that the Lord has taken her through? And, the, and, and thankfully, by the grace of God, the, the, the gentle yet powerfully life-changing influences of the Spirit upon her heart as he's taking her through this set of experiences. But the, the point is she can't control the experiences. But that doesn't mean someone's not in control of the circumstance. The Lord is, it's just not her. 
She can't control it. And in the same way, as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he's saying, this is an imperative. You must be born again, but you're not in charge of that experience. You're not in control of that experience. Being born again is not like a button you push when you're ready to push it. You push the button or you flip the switch and okay, now I'm saved before I wasn't and I decided when and where and how it's going to happen. Neither is it as we're praying for those that we want to be saved, neither is it a button or a switch we could push or flip for them. Is it? I mean, does anyone in this room have a loved one that is not saved that you wish were and you prayed for? Why haven't you just flipped the switch and made them saved? The wind blows where it wishes. I've shared with some recently, I've got a a 97-year-old father who's on his, as he's told me, on his very last legs. Last few times I've seen him, he's emphasized to me, I don't think I have much more time. And he's never once found the ability to believe the gospel in a saving way. Though I've shared what he's willing to listen to with him more than a few times. Uh, My wife has a 99-year-old mother in in almost identical circumstance. Uh, if, if, If either she or I had the ability to push the button or flip the switch and cause that person to be saved, we would have done so long ago. And there are other loved ones in my life that I would like to see saved in the same way, but I'm not in charge or in control of that. So what's that meant to do in my heart? Let me read you this brief uh, commentary on this passage we were just studying before I move us to a couple of other passages this morning. Uh, this is a quote, and I've kind of, I've kind of uh, tightened it up just for the sake of being able to read it for you. Nobody on earth can direct the wind. It acts with complete independence. It cannot even be seen. We know the wind by its sound and effect on what it strikes. Its source and destination no one knows. The wind does as it pleases. So does the Holy Spirit. His operation is sovereign and mysterious. All right, if we would uh, turn back to the book of Exodus. Next, I want to share with you two encounters between the Lord and his chosen representatives that essentially, though the stories are different, they essentially emphasize the same point. Exodus 33 This is during, of course, the Exodus, the journey of the children of Israel from Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land. And you know how we've talked about this before. If they were walking in a straight line from Egypt where they departed to the promised land where they arrived, the journey would be fairly straightforward, even Uh, given that there were men, women, and young children involved in the journey, and so you can't travel terribly fast. But if you walk on a daily basis, what was capable of being walked by such a company in those days, given there are no roads or anything to follow, uh, the journey shouldn't have taken much more than a month from, uh, from departure to destination. And again, how long did the journey actually take them? 40 years. So... During that time, uh, Moses, who was charged by the Lord with leading the people out and leading the people through and leading the people right to the verge of crossing into the promised land for this entire 40-year journey, at times Moses got frustrated because the people, the reason the journey was so long and extended was not that the Lord didn't know the way because remember it was the pillar of cloud and fire that was leading them through the wilderness. It was the people's hearts were not right and they were stubborn and they were rebellious at times. And so the Lord used the journey as the teaching moment, not just for their sake, but for our sakes even today. So I'm gonna read from Exodus 33, one of those frustrating moments um, where... I I won't read the whole passage, but we're gonna just jump in as Moses is experiencing the frustration of trying to get the people where they belong. And he's now in the presence of the Lord on the mountain of the Lord, Sinai. Verse 12, 
Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, this is actually Moses arguing with the Lord, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too, consider too, as if the Lord would forget this, consider too that this nation is your people. This is Moses doing real business with the Lord. This is where he's really living. Moses, I'm talking about, and this, this is him crying out, using argumentation, not in a rebellious attitude, not in an attack of the Lord attitude, but in, in a full, authentic honesty of his heart in his present struggles and the present struggles of the people that he's leading. And this is the Lord's response in verse 14. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Now, later we learn in the book of Hebrews that throughout their entire 40-year journey, they found no rest. They found no rest. It was not a restful journey through the wilderness. The rest was waiting in the promised land. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, this is now Moses speaking again, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Just leave us here to die in the wilderness is basically what he's saying. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. I, I love that prayer of Moses. He's basically saying, you know, the backstory. Other nations have other things to lean on and other things to brag about. This nation only has one thing, and that's we're connected to you. We are your people. So the Lord said in verse 17 to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. That's a, a wonderful assurance. The Lord is assuring the heart of Moses, I have a personal relationship with you. I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. The Lord responded and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Now he's going to reveal something more of himself to Moses than he has previously. I will make all my goodness pass before you. Now we can easily read past that and think, oh, okay, that's just, you know, the Lord is going to remind Moses that he's a good Lord. No, no. I will make all my goodness pass before you. How much goodness in the Lord is there? I mean, the only appropriate response is an infinite amount of goodness. You can't measure like with a top, you know, like a lid. There's no lid on the goodness of the Lord. So when he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, he's basically telling Moses, I'm about to reveal to you the full extent of my goodness. That's one of the most amazing promised experiences that had ever been given to any human being up until that point in history. I will make all of my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. The, the Lord is basically saying to Moses, I'm going to, I'm going to, he tells him before he actually does it, I'm going to reintroduce myself to you as I cause all my goodness to pass before you. Because as we introduce ourselves to new people, we tell them our name in order to form the beginnings of a personal relationship with them. And though Moses already knew the name of the Lord, he had in his argumentation with the Lord and in his frustration in his present experience, he was revealing to the Lord that he's not fully understood all of the implications of who the Lord actually is in the midst of this circumstance. So the Lord sees, you need to be reintroduced to me, I see. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And then the Lord adds this information, which is connected to the right understanding of his name. And this is at the heart of 
the wind blows where it wishes. This is essential to a heart of faith having a right comprehension and apprehension of who the Lord actually is. Francis, in her, in her word of sharing her testimony this morning, emphasized that the Lord will bring us at times into what she was calling the faith zone. I, I like that terminology. That makes sense to me. I think that's a biblical concept. I mean, we can make an argument and say that every day of our life, we're in the faith zone because every day of your life requires true faith in the Lord. But there are some circumstances of our lives, some moments in our lives that faith is more critically required than in other days. When I wake up and everything is just rosy in my world and going exactly the way I wanted it to go that day, I don't need a whole lot of faith that day. It's when things aren't going my way that faith comes more to the forefront. And so the Lord reminding Moses of this exact principle as he's reintroducing himself to Moses says this. And I'll proclaim before you my name and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. What's the point of that? What's he saying there? It's, it's kind of like he's just talking gobbledygook, right? I mean, it's just like he's just repeating himself. I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious. Now, the emphasis is he's, it's, it's, a, it's a beautifully rich and layered theological way to proclaim, I am completely free in my actions. I'm not beholden to you. I, Moses, here's what I want you to know about me as the Lord. I do not need your permission to act in any way that it pleases me to act, to decide in any way that pleases me to decide, to act in your life and the lives of the people that you represent in any way that I choose to do so. I'm free. I'm above you. You're below me. I'm completely free. You're not. That's the essential lesson that the Lord is reminding Moses of in this scenario. Now let's turn to one other meeting between the Lord and one of his chosen representatives, a prophet of the Lord by the name of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, we're going to be in chapter 18. Jeremiah was known in the history of the great prophets of Israel as the weeping prophet. Why do you suppose he was known as the weeping prophet? Was it because, you know, he was just an emotional guy and he just couldn't maintain his emotional equilibrium and so, you know, he just was an easy crier? He was the weeping prophet because of the heart condition of the people of God whom he represented as the prophet of the Lord and the hardness and stubbornness of their hearts, and not just for a day, not for a week, not for a month, but for more than a single generation they had been in this place. And because of that, the Lord was about to do something that was going to destabilize the entire covenant nation of Israel. He was about to cause them to be conquered by a foreign nation by the name of Babylon, and in this circumstance, uh, Jeremiah, the Lord revealed to Jeremiah what was currently happening with Israel and what was about to happen to Israel. And it caused him to weep. And it caused him to weep uh, to such an extent, to such a degree that he later just became characterized by his weeping. This is a, a weeping of true spiritual grief. But in this chapter, it's not so much about weeping. This chapter, chapter 18 is an exchange between the Lord and Jeremiah where the Lord is making known to Jeremiah this principle that the wind blows where it wishes and that the Lord will be gracious to whom he will be gracious and have mercy upon whom he will have mercy because in the midst of the circumstance, it's easy to lose sight of that first principle of who the Lord is in relationship to us. And by the way, if, if you have not learned this about the Lord, You've learned relatively nothing about him. The word that came to Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 18, from the Lord, 
the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying this, arise, go down to the potter's house and there I will let you hear my words. So the Lord has a message he's going to proclaim. Later in chapter 18, we'll have the actual words recorded. I won't have time to go through the actual message of the Lord in words. But before the Lord speaks his word to him, he does for Jeremiah what the Lord will often do for us. He did it for me, not that I'm a prophet like Jeremiah, but he did it for me Saturday morning as I was sitting on the side of my bed and I'm complaining about the wind blowing outside. And then the word of the Lord came to my remembrance, the wind blows where it wishes. And then my heart was immediately refreshed by the understanding that goes with that declaration from the Lord, which is he's in charge, I'm not. Why am I complaining about the wind? He's in charge of the wind, I'm not. So the Lord says to Jeremiah, I'm going to speak a message to you, but I'll tell you what I'm gonna do. And he doesn't give all this explanation. I will give you a word picture first. I will give you a visual help. I'm gonna show you something and then I'm going to talk to you about it after I show it to you. But what he's gonna show him is going to be seen and displayed in what he sees and observes at the potter's house. Arise, go down to the potter's house and there I will let you hear my words. So Jeremiah did whatever he true prophet does, he obeyed the Lord. So I went down to the potter's house and there he, not the Lord, but the potter, there he, the potter, was working at his wheel. Now, uh, has anyone ever, maybe in person, maybe by video, maybe on TV, maybe in a movie, have you ever seen a potter working on a wheel with clay? Okay, so I don't have to go through the whole explanation of what that looks like. Um, he was working at his wheel and the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, meaning he's working with this soft clay and at a, at a certain point in the project he was working on, he, he affected the, the vessel in such a way and it could, have been, it could have been a lack of skill on the potter's part as Jeremiah was observing, or it could have been a flaw in the clay because a flaw in the clay can cause a vessel to be spoiled as well. In terms of this image and what the Lord's going to say to him, I think the second is the better choice because in a moment, the Lord is going to compare himself to the potter. And clearly, when we're looking at the Lord as a potter, the issue is never a lack of skill on the potter's part, but a flaw in the clay. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. <clears throat> Excuse me for my wind-affected voice here this morning. It was spoiled in the potter's hand and he reworked it into another vessel. And then this phrase, I love this phrase, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Now what, what's involved in reworking a spoiled vessel? We're, just, we're talking about there's a final phase for pottery where when you have whatever it is that you're shaping, in exactly the shape that you want it to be, then they, they will uh, put some glaze on it, I think is the way that it goes, and then they'll put it in the oven, the potter's oven, and then they will heat it up and bake it, and it will harden into that shape and be a useful vessel from then on. But before that final phase of putting it in the oven, it can be reshaped. So you've got it, let's say, let's say he was making a, a a coffee cup, not that they drank coffee in those days, but let's just say he was making a coffee cup. And he's got it pretty much shaped the way he wants, but then he sees some flaw in the clay and it's, there's gonna be a leak in it and it's not going to work the way that it's intended to work. Now he's intending, he's just made the decision, this will not work this way, I'm going to rework it. What's involved? What does he do next? Yeah, he just takes his hand and just goes splat on that, on that flawed coffee cup design, splat. And then he starts working it again, puts it back on the wheel and he starts reshaping it, building it back up from ground zero, starting all over again. So he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then, then the word of the Lord came to me. Remember what he had said, 
up in verse two. Arise, go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. I'm gonna show you first visual help. I'm gonna let you observe the potter making this vessel and then remaking this vessel, and then I'm going to speak to you and I'm going to tell you what's on my heart to communicate. So verse five, then the word of the Lord came to me. And this is where the Lord connects the visual image to the real life circumstance that Jeremiah is concerned about. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, even though Jeremiah is not the entire house of Israel, he's as prophet of God representing the house of Israel and he's going to be sent by the Lord to go to the entire house of Israel and communicate the message from the Lord that the Lord communicated to him. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. All right, there's two possibilities of what the Lord is emphasizing here. When he asks a question, and it's what we, what we know to be a rhetorical question, just as a catch up, make sure we're all on the same page. What's a rhetorical question? It's a question with an obvious answer. There's only one right obvious answer, but it's not a question like, I'm scratching my head, I don't know the answer to this question. It's, it's a teaching device where the teacher asks a question that the, that the people being taught already know, but it's calling their attention to it, <clears throat> excuse me, from their own understanding. So he says, can I not do with you as the potter has done? That's a rhetorical question. What's the answer? Yes, of course you can. But why? So there's two possibilities. One is the Lord, if we're gonna just measure on a power scale, like um, when I was growing up, I was a big comic book fan. I read mostly Marvel comics, but some DC comics as well. Uh, DC is where Superman lives, right? And Batman. And then Marvel is where, you know, the Hulk and Thor and all of those guys, Spider-Man live. Anyway, I read these comics and I enjoyed them thoroughly. And, you know, it kind of fired my imagination for such things. And one of the things that was always enjoyable to consider was the power scale of the, of the superheroes in those respective universes. Like, who's stronger than who? What would happen, because they live in two different comic worlds, but what would happen if Superman were to fight the Hulk? You know who the Hulk is? He's the big green guy with, with gigantic muscles. And then Superman, you all know who Superman is, right? I don't have to explain Superman to you. So now Superman and the Hulk are going to meet and they're going to fight. And Hulk is the strongest that there is. But is he stronger than Superman, really? But the problem with the Hulk is, the more he gets hurt, the matter he gets, and the matter he gets, the stronger he gets. There's no limit to the Hulk's strength. But you can't hurt Superman. So, you know, you go back and forth and there's this scale of strength. So now let's, let's you know, where, how did I get there from Jeremiah chapter 18, right? <laughs> but there, there's a connection here, okay? As you're considering, the Lord says, I, can I not do this with you? It's because this, this power scale of the Lord compared to Israel is so vast in difference. The Lord could be saying, you can't stop me. I'm so powerful. I can do whatever I want with you. I, and you, yeah, you can try, but you can't stop me from doing it. Now, is that true? Yes, it's absolutely true. But is, is that what he's really emphasizing? Or is he emphasizing not so much power here, though his power is always there and it's always a factor to consider. Is he emphasizing right rather than power? Who has the right to do such a thing to another person? The Lord is a person and Israel is a nation filled with persons. And does one person have the right if this other person doesn't turn out the way they want them? like the clay on the potter's wheel to just splat and to start all over again and to rework them exactly the way he wants them to be rather than the way they would prefer to be. 
he's really emphasizing right over power here. The Lord has the right in the lives of all of the children of Israel to do with them as he sees fit and as he wills because they only exist because of him. They only have special covenant standing because of him. They only are in the wilderness because of his saving work in bringing them out of Egypt. They're only being sustained in the wilderness because he's miraculously providing bread from heaven and water from the rock for, for their physical sustenance. They only exist because of him. And if they're not turning out the way he wants them to turn out, then he has the right to rework them. Now, I don't believe any truly born again child of God will be at the same extent, their depth of problematic uh, circumstance, heart circumstance as what the Lord and Jeremiah were dealing with with the children of Israel at this moment in old covenant history. Because there's something essentially different for us, us who are born again. Our heart at down deep, the core. Later, Jeremiah even talks about it as a prophecy. There's coming a day, it's not like this now, but there's coming a day when the Lord is going to do a, 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 a miraculous spiritual heart surgery in the hearts of his people. And he's gonna take the old heart out and he's gonna replace it with a new yielding heart. What he takes out is gonna be stubborn and hard like a rock and what he puts in is gonna be soft and yielding like flesh. He's, gonna, he's, he's telling them how he's going to eventually rework them. But for us, we've been somewhat reworked already. However, we know and understand in this process that we call sanctification, that the Lord is still not satisfied with any single person in this room today, including myself. We're not at the final, we're not at the firing stage. The firing stage is when the vessel is just the way he wants it. And now we're gonna coat it with that glaze, we're gonna put it in the fire, we're going to fire it and harden it, and it's gonna be like that forever. We will have that experience at the second coming of Christ. But this side of the second coming, every day that we live is a day of being somewhat reworked by the Lord as he is shaping and molding and changing. And sometimes the reworking is so deep that it almost feels like he's starting all over with us again. But the question that every believer has to get fully resolved in their hearts is, does the Lord have the right to do that with me? Of course, he's got the power to do it. He doesn't have to even consult you. He doesn't have to mention anything to you that he's intending to do that. He's got the full ability to do it. But are you at peace with the fact that he has the right to do that with you? Because you only exist by his gracious work of creation. You were only saved by his gracious work of causing the, will, the wind to blow where it, where it wished in that circumstance of your regeneration. And you are being sanctified because it's his will and intent and purpose to do so. Now, for the rest of our, our study, why don't we go to the next uh, slide. I'm just gonna go through a quick list with you. I'm not gonna take us to any of these passages. I don't have time to do that this morning, but I want them up here in case you wanna take notes and in case you wanna look these up on your own, I would recommend that you do so. The Lord was in the beginning of all things free to create the world that he created and us as inhabitants in that world. You see Colossians 1.16 and Revelation 4.11 that speak to that issue. The Lord is free to hold us I'm talking about us as humanity, humanity as a whole, to hold us accountable to him and to judge us when he needs to judge us and sees fit to do so. Genesis chapter six, verses five through seven, the circumstances leading up to the flood. Second Thessalonians chapter one, verses five through 10, which is all about the impending second coming of Christ and the final accountability that the Lord will hold every human being that's ever lived in this world to and the judgment that will immediately follow. No one's gonna be able to stand before the throne on the day of judgment and say, Lord, you have no right to hold me accountable and you have no right to judge me. I'm the only one that can judge myself. I mean, you could, you could dare to try to say those words, but they're not gonna 
they're not going to have much of an impact on the Lord at that moment. Uh, he is free to govern us. I'm talking about govern us at every, at every level in every sense of the concept of government. You know what government means? It means there is such a thing as authority. And all authority, we're taught in scripture, derives from the great authority of God's, God's own throne. And then he chooses to appoint those in the world around us as representatives of his authority. He does so in civil government on a national level, in our country, state level, city level, and he does so in church settings in terms of church government, appointed leaders that represent his authority, and he does so in family government in that there is an order of his authority in the family, father, mother, husband, wife, and then children under that authority. You can look at Daniel chapter two, verses 20 through 22, which emphasizes that the Lord sets up and then removes and then resets up kings according to his own plans and purposes. Uh, we're about to have a, you know, we're in another election cycle. Uh, what, is, what was true about kings in the days of Daniel is certainly true about presidents in our day. The Lord places presidents in office and then he removes presidents from office and he does so in every sphere of authority that matters to him. Uh, next, he is free to save us. Um, Ephesians 1, three through six uh, emphasizes that from the highest level of God's eternal plans and purposes. And then Romans nine, where Paul in verses 15 through 21 takes the communication that the Lord gave to Moses on the mountain that we just studied earlier today uh, just a few moments ago, where the Lord said to Moses, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. And Paul takes that and, and develops that concept and connects it to the mysterious concept of predestination in salvation and how it's the Lord's choice ultimately that determines who is saved. It's not that human choice doesn't matter, it's just that human choice is ineffective in, in, re, in relationship to who is actually ultimately going to be saved. And then finally, he is free to sanctify us. Two passages I think you know from Philippians, the one in chapter one. Um, in fact, I've got just enough time. Turn over to Philippians one for a moment. Verse six, super familiar passage, wonderful passage in um, all the promise boxes that you can buy that Christians sometimes have on their dining room table. This one's always in there, uh, but it means something more than what typically is emphasized. Paul says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The wonderful thing is the Lord, if you're saved, if you're born again, if you belong to him, the Lord began a good work in you. But he says this, this is the emphasis. He who began a good work will bring it to completion. What's not said there is whether you like it or not. Because bringing it to completion means there's more changes that he intends to make in you things that you're comfortable with, that he's not comfortable with, things that you give yourself permission for that he doesn't give you permission for, things that are priorities at high level of importance in your life that are not a priority to him at all. He'll bring it to completion. He's gonna continue to work. And then of course in chapter two, the passage of, for it's God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure He's at work in you, whether you're granting him daily permission to do so or not. Now, it's always better if every day you wake up and say, Lord, I know you're gonna be at work in me today to will and to work for your good pleasure. I wanna get on board. I wanna, I wanna cooperate with you. I want to be right there saying amen and being obedient at every point that I discern your influence. But he's going to work in order to cause you to make new choices and to behave in new ways, whether you want him to do so or not. All right, let's end this with this, Romans chapter 11. Just soak this in as I read it. This is verses 33 through 36. 
Um, the book of Romans is basically divided into two sections. And this is the last few verses of section one, the deep, theologically dense section at the beginning of the book of Romans before he shifts into the practical application. But this is the summation from Paul of all, just the consideration of the great plan of redemption that he's accomplished in Christ and now as it's focused on your life. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgment and how inscrutable his ways. I mean, you can study them, but it's difficult to fully comprehend them. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Did you give the Lord any advice that led him to do the things that he's choosing to do? If you had, he would have disregarded it. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Does he owe you anything? For from him and through him and ultimately to him, meaning he is the goal, not just the origin point of all things, not just the sustaining uh, factor behind all things, but he is the goal of all things. From him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever, amen. So if you take one thing away this morning as you walk out the doors into the windy afternoon, uh, remember this, the wind blows where it wishes. That's, that's a, a, a thing the Lord never wants us to lose sight of as we're walking with him. He's in charge, we're not. He's, he's wise, we're only growing in wisdom. And um, let the wind blow as, as it chooses to blow. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for the rich time of worship that we had, the time at your table. Thank you, Lord, for our short time in your word. We pray that you would please take your words as you, as you choose to do and, and plant them in our hearts and minds and cause your words to continue to change and transform us, reworking us to be the vessels that are pleasing to you. We thank you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. God bless.